Good morning, City Light. My name is Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, This morning, we're going to actually continue our journey through the life of David. And so if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, uh, would you open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 18? Uh, last week, we got the opportunity to hear from Austin. He, he shared the story that, that's a fairly well-known story of David defeating Goliath. And David, the unknown shepherd, comes in and eliminates the threat toward God's people. It's a beautiful story. And what we found out in that story is that we are scared Israel in desperate need of a Savior. And this, this, this David comes in and saves the day for the, the people of Israel. And, and he can't hide out anymore in obscurity. And so what happens is he's anointed as king. And then from the eyes of his people, he's their Savior. Uh, and in much in the same way, that through the, the person of David, we were able to see that David was a foreshadowing of Jesus. And, and in him defeating the giant, he's a foreshadowing of a, a greater giant, a, a giant that was defeated by our Savior, Jesus, of sin, Satan, and death. And he, he defeated that giant so that we might have right relationship with God. And that's, that's good news for us, right? Uh, but with that good news, uh, we daily must choose how will we respond to to it. Uh, the Christian life, as communicated in the New Testament, is mostly characterized as a battle. It, it's a battle, specifically a battle of our heart. Our human heart loves glory. In, in fact, we, we love things to be about us. And even most advertisement in our world kind of caters toward that, right? Like a lot of advertisement talks about uh, self-glory, self-fame, self-promotion, self-serving, and, and we love it. Uh, we, we take great pleasure in that, and, and, but when we're forced to, to, to choose, when we're faced with the good news of the gospel, we have an opportunity to respond properly to that victory. Uh, it's a battle over whether or not we're going to glorify Jesus or glorify ourselves. And let's be honest, we like to be noticed. We like to be recognized, don't we? Uh, like when we erect a statue for a person, that shows honor for that person. We, we enjoy doing that. Or if someone decides to put forth money to build a school or a building, we, we name that building or at least a room in that building after that person. And we, we, we like to take credit for things that we've done or accomplished. And we love to be recognized by our peers. And, and this isn't a struggle that's only for a few people, okay? Like, this is a universal struggle that we all deal with. And it's not innately wrong to want to be noticed for something that we've done. But what happens when that jeopardizes Jesus' recognition through your life? What if making you famous is more important than making Jesus famous. If, if like me, you struggle with this same thing, I, our passage this morning is going to help us out a little bit. As we continue to journey with the person of David, we will see how the human heart can respond when it, when it is exposed to the good news of the, God's anointed king's uh, victory. We'll see how, what happens when our hearts are exposed by the victory of God's anointed king. Uh, and, and really, there's just two responses. Those two responses, either our hearts will experience the beauty of deferring glory to the Savior, or it will incur the dangers of desiring glory of the Savior. Uh, The dangers of desiring glory from the Savior. And so first we'll look at the beauty of deferring glory to the Savior first. Uh, We'll pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul... 
Uh, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of all of Saul's servants. Now this relationship is an epic one between David and Jonathan. And, and, and most often we see this, this display of brotherhood and friendship that's so intimate, so beautiful. And typically that's what's shared. And, and that's not a wrong thing. It's a, a good thing to emphasize that relationship. But what I want to do is I want to take a greater context into account as to why this relationship and the way it displays itself matters so much. And so when we look at Jonathan, who's Saul's son, by the way, uh, he heard the good news of the victory. He he heard about who that victory was from, and, and, and here's what it said. It said, his soul was knit to the soul of David, and he loved David. Like, that's, that's very intimate, affectionate, beautiful language to, to talk about the posture of Jonathan toward David. Now, when we see that, we should be surprised by that. We should be kind of shocked that, that that's Jonathan's response toward David because both of these guys had every reason to be in rival with one another, to not like one another. Because if, if you think about it, so Saul, current king over Israel, typically speaking, the tradition is that if your dad is king and you're the prince, you're the oldest son, well, you're the next guy in line. You're going to be king but because Saul disobeyed God, what happens is, is, is that God had to anoint a new king because of Saul's disobedience. And that next anointed king wasn't Jonathan, but David. You see why it was such a shocking thing? The fact that, that Jonathan would love David so much, even though he's technically taking his, his apparent role in the throne. In our next text, our verse here in verse 1 describes it as Jonathan's soul being knit to the soul of David. It depicts a a familial language there where it's not just saying, hey, I like David. No, he's saying, that's my brother. That's my, my best friend. He was knit so tightly, so closely to him. And that's a similar relationship, but on a grander scale that we can have with Jesus. We can have a deep, intimate friendship, and and actually, he's the best friend that we could ever have, right? Because he's always loving us. He's always listening. He's always there with us. He's our greatest advocate. He is for us. He's with us. He's never against us. It's what, What a wonderful friend we get to have. We can take joy in the fact that our God would call us a friend. And Jonathan not only loved and cherished David, but he wasn't about his own glory or himself. He, he wanted to push glory toward David. And this love that he had for David wasn't just this emotional or intellectual exercise of love. It was, it was action-oriented. It says that Jonathan took off his robe, his armor, his sword, his bow, belt, and placed it on David. This is a symbolic of a great transfer between Jonathan and David. You see, Jonathan willingly gave up his rightful place, rightful position to David for the glory of God. Right? He, he knit himself to David in God's plan. He gave up his right to defend his own rule and reign and gave in to God's rule and reign instead. You see, Jonathan didn't fight God's plan but leaned into it. In fact, he, he embraced it. It was, it was a great, humble display that he had. 
And City Light, here's why this matters. There's a beauty in deferring glory to our Savior. There's a beautiful benefit to it. Like with David, our, our Savior, like David, will go out and fight battles for us and have great success in our battles. But we only get to enjoy those victories our, it, it, once we take ourself off the throne and place Jesus there instead. You see that? You only get to enjoy the victories of God when you place God on the throne and take yourself off. Now, some of you might know that I, I really love and enjoy the game of basketball. It is, it, I've been doing it since I was five years old. If it's on TV, I'm geared in. If there's an opportunity to play, barring no family obligation, I'm gone. I'm there. I'm going to play. Like, I, I just love the game. I take so much joy and pleasure, especially when I win. I really, really like to win the game, okay? Uh, ask my friends. Uh, anyway, I used to go downtown a lot to the University Rec Center. And when I go down there, to know UNL rec basketball is to know a good competitive game. Because what you have is a group of guys, some of you in here probably, um, you'll get beat later. Uh, Some of you in here have probably played in the rec at one point or another. And what you have is a group of guys who played high school basketball at one point, didn't end up getting to go college play sports, and they're basically trying to be the best rec ball player they can, right? Like, it gets nasty, it gets a little competitive, it's fun, uh, and and I enjoy it. But anyway, so with rec ball comes a set of rules. Okay, some of those rules are you call your own fouls, you have to shoot in order to actually get in the game. So you had to make a shot to get in the game. And then if you shoot within the three point line, it counts for one outside the three point line, it counts for two. And then there's one more rule that I think no one ever pays that close of attention to. I call it the rule of the last shot. Okay, so so what happens traditionally is, is that when I go to these games or play in these games, the rule of the last shot usually comes into play. But here's, here's the issue. Typically, the last shot in the game, when the game's on the line, you're, everyone has an expected person who's going to get the ball, right? Like, everybody knows it's going to be Jordan, LeBron, whoever it might be. They're going to get the ball because either they've been the most trustworthy with it or they've made the most shots or whatever. But there's an expectation. We all in the room know who's going to get the ball. But in rec ball, the rule of the last shot comes into play. The rule of the last shot says that the guy that everybody expects, he gets the ball, and then he does something strange. He defers the ball to the guy in the corner who no one expects. He shoots the ball, and it goes in. They win the game, and it ticks me off every time. I am not happy, unless he's on my team. If he's on my team, then that's a win, and I'll take it. But that's the rule of the last shot. It's always the guy who's the unexpected who hits the shot at the end. And here's the moral of the story. The guy that everyone expects doesn't get the glory for winning the game, but he gets the glory of the game being won, right? He gets to be on the team. He gets to have the win. And see, Jesus was that unexpected shooter in the corner. Like David, no one expected Jesus to come in and win the day or win the victory, but he did indeed shoot the last and final shot that we needed to have to, in order for us to have the victory. And we don't get to take pride in or joy in our own victorious shot at the end of the day. No, what we do get to take glory in is the fact that he did, in fact, take that shot. It did go in, and we get to celebrate that we get the win. Amen? And so in like fashion... Like Jonathan, we have an opportunity to take every single aspect of our life and push it forward to the glory of God. Uh, James 1, 16 and 17 says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every blessing we have in this life is a gift from God. 
We were given it by God. That means your money, your talent, your time, it's not yours. He gifted it to you as a gift to you. And so we, we have the freedom that we can leverage those things to the glory of God. It's a beautiful gift that he would give us. You see, Jonathan committed to God's plan for Israel. He was more interested in the Lord's kingdom over and above his own kingdom. Jonathan saw the beauty of deferring glory to God's anointed king, and so do we. But here's the battle. As as we continue to walk with our Savior, our sinful nature starts to creep in, and we, we start to seek to gain our own glory for ourselves. As we look to Saul's life here in just a moment, we'll see that his response to the victory of Israel's anointed king, as we look at that, we'll start to see how our hearts have that similar tendency. So point two, the dangers of desiring glory from the Savior. The dangers of desiring glory from the Savior. And as we transition to this part of the story, what happens is is David's gone off. He's won great victories and great battles with the army of Israel. And then he's coming back, and there's this huge celebration. There's a party. As was listed when the scripture was read, there's a bunch of different instruments being played. And so it was just massive. And, And so we'll pick it up in verse 7. Here's what it says. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And so what happened is the men are coming in from battle. They have this great victory, and there's this huge party. And the women are singing, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David has struck down his ten thousands. And and it's just a huge, huge, massive party that they're having. And even the song that they're singing, like, it might sound like a slight to Saul, but most commentators would say, no, it wasn't a slight. It was just trying to display the immensity of their victory. But Saul doesn't take it that way, does he? It's not enough for Saul to have the win and maybe have David have a little bit of a prominent role in it. He wanted all the glory for himself. And I have no doubt in my mind that Saul was thinking back to what Samuel had said to him in chapter 13. Here's what Samuel said to him. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But... Now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You see, Saul gets jealous of David's glory and, and because he, he desires that glory for himself. He, he was so jealous that it drove him crazy. It, it tormented him. And, and then in verse 11, he, he tries to kill David. And this is just a messed up scene when you look at it. So David's there trying to help Saul, right? So he's playing the harp. He's playing the lyre for him so he might feel better. And what Saul does is he tries to kill him instead. He throws his spear at him. 
You see, he plotted to kill David because he was afraid that David would, would take over his throne. He, Saul was preemptively trying to kill David because he thought that David might overthrow him. And, and the crazy thing about all this is that David uniquely was faithful to Saul. He, he, he fought for Saul. He, he had great success. And, and Saul would get the victory in all these things. He was a valued asset to the kingdom of Saul. But since Saul had a corrupt heart, he knew that if he was in David's position, he would overthrow him. And so therefore, he decided he wanted to kill God's anointed one. See, Saul was only about himself. He was about his own glory, his own preservation, primarily concerned with how other people viewed him or or thought of him. And so when we're looking at this, if, if David was so good and so kind and so helping to Saul, why couldn't Saul just trust him? Well, I think sinful and evil behavior believes that others will do the same to them. Let me put it another way. Growing up, I was always told that a thief always thinks that someone else is trying to steal from them. You see, our, 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 the same is true of our sinful nature, our sin struggles that we have. And so if, if you're in the room and you're thinking, I'm being judged all the time, maybe you're the person who's also judging a lot. Or if you're saying, man, people keep trying to control me and and force me to do things that I don't want to do, maybe you're the one that's trying to control others. Or, Or maybe you're sitting in the room and you're thinking, man, everyone is always against me. I'm always wrong. Maybe you're the one that's viewing others and against others and thinking that they're wrong. Our insecurities about our sin or others sinning against us, doesn't come from a place of loving thy neighbor as thyself, but as our sin in loving ourselves. We tend to place our sinful conscience on other people. And Saul's doing the same thing. He, he not only no longer loved David, but he actually, in fact, because of his hunger for glory, hated David. He was about his own glory. Since he, since he couldn't kill him in this instant with the spear in verse 13, he essentially does the equivalent of sending him to the front line of war, hoping that he would get killed in the process. But of course, David's always winning. And so David got success in that. And people started to look at David and say, man, the Lord is with him. He continues to win. And so then David continues on in chapter 18 with scheming where he, he tries to marry him off to his eldest daughter, Merib. And, and, and David, being a humble man, says, no, I'll, I'll turn that down. And then he, he schemes some more and says, you know what? My daughter, McCall, loves him. Why don't I, I let you marry her? And, and so isn't that like this? If you're looking at this picture, it's, it's about one of the most twisted marriage engagement stories you can find, right? Like, okay, so he's the king over Israel. I'm the anointed king, supposed to be king over him eventually. Oh, and he's trying to kill me and somehow get me to marry his daughter. Doesn't make any sense. It is a messed up show here. And in the offer for Michal to marry David, David accepts that offer. But here's the qualification. Look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Okay. The Bible says it's there. He just got asked not only... 
is his his future father-in-law trying to kill him. Not only is he supposed to be king over this guy, not only is he offering his daughter, but he said, hey, you got to go out and circumcise 100 other dudes. That's a problem, right? Like, that's an issue. Like, if you're a guy in the room, you're like, man, I'm afraid to ask for her hand in marriage, you don't have a problem. Like, look at what David's being asked to do in their marriage. It's crazy. So what does David do? Well, naturally, like God's anointed king, he kills and circumcises 200 instead. He gives double honor to the man who's trying to kill him, to God's king, to to Israel's king. And he continues to have great esteem among the people and gain all the glory because he continues to win because the Lord is with him. And Saul continues to plot scheme against David again and again to the point where he comes head to head with his son Jonathan. And that's where we're at in chapter 19, verse 1. We'll pick it up there. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because he, his deeds have brought good to you, for he took his life in his own hands and struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And so Jonathan opposes his father in killing David, which is, again, another incredible choice for Jonathan to put down his opportunity for glory. You see, if he helped his dad kill David, he would have secured his place of glory as being the next king. And yet, instead, he confronts his desire for glory with truth. He also sees that his father's acts here are sinful, and and so he reasons with Saul about all the good things that David had done and reminds Saul about how he rejoiced over the fact that David would be willing to give his own life for the salvation of his people. Jonathan is showing Saul that that his motives, his, his actions are wrong, and Saul's response is to repent or relent from trying to kill David in the moment. See, we are, when we're in the midst of desiring our own glory, truth, specifically truth about our Savior, is the only thing that can release us from the, the madness that it creates. It's hard, though, when someone calls you on your sin, right? It doesn't usually feel good, but how do you respond to it? Do you respond with pride or rationalizing your sin? Or do you walk in repentance and turning away from your sin? See, we all need our lives, in our lives, someone to speak truth into them, even if it, it hurts us. And Jonathan was just that for Saul. He, he risked the relationship that he had with his own father to be faithful to God and God's anointed king. You see, we all need that. And then you have to ask the question, though, are you willing to do the same for someone that you love? Are you willing to risk uh, attention in the relationship or, or even loss of the relationship for the sake of the glory of God and truth? 
See, the most loving thing that Jonathan could have done for his father is try to deter him from the dangers of desiring his own glory. Saul's desire for glory started to unravel every aspect of his life. And, and David, or Jonathan rather, was, was actually on the opposite side of that. He responded to David very differently. Jonathan saw David as a friend. Saul saw him as a foe. Jonathan was faithful to David, and Saul was fearful of David. Jonathan was in support of David, and Saul looked to scheme against David. You see the difference? We see how overwhelming his desire is for glory because he continues to try to kill David, right? In verse 11, he tries to kill him for himself. In 17, 21, and 25, he, he tries to use his own daughters to, to scheme and his own uh, battles to, to kill David. And then David escapes all of those things. This dude has lost his mind at this point, right? Seeing that Saul would go toe-to-toe with his own kids, would kill an innocent man and wasn't willing to take the win because it didn't give him the utmost glory, reveals what's going on in his heart. Because whatever we want to give glory to reveals our deepest love. You see, we don't have a glory problem, we have a love problem. Saul was himself. He loved himself. He gave so much weight to what he wanted, desired, or needed over what God would desire. And so most of us at this point are looking at Saul thinking, man, this dude has lost his mind. He is crazy. We would, we would paint the picture, this is a crazed maniac, which he is. That's a fair assessment. But let me ask you something. What does your heart do when someone else gets blessed and you don't? How does, your, how does it make you feel when God is working in someone else's life the way you wanted him to work in yours. Better yet, what does your heart do when your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, classmate gets the house, the money, the car, the success, the job, the date, or just fill in the blank with whatever your desire is? How, How do you feel then? What does your heart do when that reality comes about when you want what they have? Do you get frustrated when things go bad for, don't go bad for someone even though they didn't make the right decisions like working hard or studying hard or, or doing right by their kids? Even though they don't do that and they don't get the consequence for it, do you get upset or frustrated that they didn't get their due or just desserts? Because if we're honest, there are times that we are so ruled by our desire for glory that it, at, at these moments of our want, we, we start to come up with anger and frustration and fear. And, and most of these things come from a place of a, a fear of losing control or losing power. When we're face-to-face with that, we, we see how deeply and truly we actually love ourselves and desire our own glory. And here's the danger. As a result, we lose much more than control or power. Uh, truthfully, actually, power and control aren't ours to begin with. They're God's. Like Saul, it can cost us deep relationships or at least a connectedness in relationships when we're seeking and loving ourselves so much. Think about it. Saul desired David's glory so much that he was willing to leverage his own relationship with his kids and lost. Desiring our own glory over God's is a dangerous disease that will slowly eat away at our soul, and and it will make us do, say, and think some of the most terrible things we could ever do, say, or think. 
When we fight the battle for our own glory, the only thing is, it brings about is loss, loss of everything else around us. When, when we're fighting for our own glory, our own desire, the real danger is like Saul's danger, is that we're actually fighting against God. And guess what? He always wins. God's about God's glory. And, and when he created us, he created us just for that. He created us not to glorify ourselves, but to glorify him. And so when we functionally look for recognition in our own glory over and above his, we're actually stepping outside of the boundaries of what we were created for. And that creates in us fear, doubt, and even skepticism when it comes to life and even when it comes to God. So how do we battle this temptation to be about our own glory and about ourselves? Well, I think this passage actually reveals to us, based upon the other people's response to David, God's anointed king. Let me show you. Jonathan loved him. Who? This is verse 1 of chapter 18. David is God's anointed king, and it says Jonathan loved him. Uh, 18.16 says, but all Israel and Judah loved David. 18.20 says, Michal loved David. You seeing it? They loved God's anointed king. Jonathan put his earthly crown down to exalt God. He he knew that David was God's anointed king, and he trusted God. So the fight is found in the gospel. The battle is fought by seeing the beauty of our anointed king and his victory as our own, looking to him for our joy, affection, and worth. Jonathan knew and submitted to God's plan to make David king instead of him, and then did whatever he could to push glory toward David. And so we, too, must submit to our king, Jesus, and live for his glory and his honor and his praise alone. There's a beauty in giving glory to the Savior. See, Jonathan knew that God loved him so deeply and cared for him, even whether he was a king or not. Because God was so gracious to Jonathan, Jonathan was gracious to David. The gospel freed Jonathan to to, to be who God had created him to be and not what could have been. We also have a New Testament example of Jonathan. His name is John the Baptist. And in the gospel of John chapter 3, verses 28 through 30, here's what it says. It says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, this is John the Baptist, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, the good news for us is that if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you no longer have to be the hero of your story. We are free to not seek our own glory. Our identity, who we are, isn't wrapped up in our profession or what other people say or think about us. It is only found in the gospel. It's only found in Jesus. It's only found in the love that Jesus has displayed for us on the cross. Jesus is all we need for joy and completion. Jesus deferred his glory and came down to earth to save us. He he took off his heavenly crown and put on a crown of thorns. He left his heavenly seat and was seated with sinners For what? To display the infinite beauty of God's glory and so that you and I can see it as well and pursue God's glory as well because Jesus is our king. He is our savior. 
The bad news is if we, like Saul, reject God's anointed king, Jesus, we're in a losing battle, a losing battle for an eternal life. Uh, if, we, if we, like Saul, reject God's anointed king, Jesus, we're in a, the losing side of an eternal battle for our hearts. God's plan has always been to send his son to die for his people. And the call for us is to place our faith in him, walk in light of his victory, and fall more deeply in love with him because of what he's done. Listen, God's not going to take your arm and twist it and say, hey, you need to glorify me. No, what he's going to do is patiently, lovingly, and graciously show you how immensely beautiful, victorious, and loving that he is and wait for you to push forward and, and glorify him. So don't, don't turn your heart from that. It's beautiful. Give him glory. And, and maybe for some of you, this might be the first day, the first time that you glorify God by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. All you have to do is say, God, I, in my heart, I know that I am a sinful man. I, I have sinned against the holy God. I am like the Israelites, desperate for a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. I trust him for salvation. I trust his victory as my own victory. And, and when we're tempted, when, we're, when we face the temptation to seek our own recognition, the temptation to set ourselves to be approved by others or climb up a ladder and assert our victory, need I remind you of who Jesus is. Because when we remember that, that very thing will help us drive toward giving him glory and not ourselves. With our Savior in view, we can enjoy the beauty of deferring glory to our Savior and Him alone. We no longer have to desire our own glory because He is our glory. Amen? Let's pray.